Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten. This podcast is sponsored by RedArmyBet.com. Have a look for the latest odds and offers. RedArmyBet.com. I'm walking through St Pancras Station. I've just taken a train from Manchester down to London. As I walk and start recording, a man starts playing the piano. It's very genteel. I walked down towards King's Cross and I've met Jonathan Wilson, the football writer. He's originally from Sunderland. I think he lives down in London now and he's, he writes for The Guardian, he's written loads of books. I've read several of his books, bought several copies of one of his books uh, behind the Iron Curtain? Behind the Curtain. Behind the Curtain, in 2006. Yeah. Treated every uh, United We Stand writer to a copy of that. It's a fantastic look into football behind the old Iron Curtain. Jonathan, you've done a book on Manchester United and we're talking on the hoof here. So I'm sure the re- listeners will understand if there are slight interruptions as uh, buskers ask for money or whatever. Um, tell us about your new book on Manchester United. Well, it follows the books I've done on England and Liverpool, um, looking at 10 key games in the history of the team. Um, now, I signed the, the, the deal to do the United book when I signed the deal to do the Liverpool book. It wasn't I prioritised Liverpool, so don't worry about that. Um, I was starting to worry. <laughs> and... Um, I, th- I think the idea, the idea is that um, by, by focusing on 10 games, you can really go into detail, you can really get granular in, in looking at managers, looking at players, looking at how, how games worked. And I think quite often, what if you have more of an overview of a history, um, you can sort of skate over the surface. And you, don't, you, you can appear that, oh, Busby took over, yeah, things developed, you got the, you know, the babes came through, then Munich happened, and it, it seems like everything was fine. And actually, you know, he was dealing with challenges, dealing with problems every single day. Um, and this approach allows you, I think, to look at how he tackled that in a way that a more overview type of history wouldn't. Are you happy with the book? Uh, yeah, relatively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, if I'm being totally honest, I think the format works really, really well for a national team. Uh, mainly because there's fewer games and certainly fewer important games. I think you have to slightly modify the approach for club sides. Um, so it's not quite the same type of book as the England book. It is the same type of book as the Liverpool book. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's worked relatively well. You write a lot about tactics, Jonathan. Was that your, your best-selling book, Inverting the Pin and Yeah, by a million miles. Yeah. Uh, yeah, by, I think if you take into account overseas sales as well, probably by a factor of four or five. So, yeah, hugely better selling. Then I think the Clough book is second. So, And the interest in tactics from a lot of fans, a lot of fans who don't go to games, is that a new thing? Cause I don't know if it's new. Um, I mean, I think it's certainly something that in the last sort of, 10, 12 years has um, come to prominence. Uh, but, yeah. Think back to the Guardian sort of 15 years ago and they had Ron Atkinson doing columns and then David Pleat took that on. Um, so I think the interest has always been there. And you read books like you know, Bernard Joy, the former Arsenal centre-back, he wrote a book on tactics, actually a really good book in, I guess it was late 50s, maybe early 60s. So these books were there, I think the, the interest was there. Maybe the interest wasn't as mainstream as it is now. Now I think the reasons for that are, are interesting. Um, my, my, my suspicion is has always been the sort of uh, the geeks and the nerds who follow football who, who like that kind of thing 
and maybe the way we now consume football, the internet, the fact that you know, we now tend to watch it on satellite stations, which obviously have a license to, to go into depth more, because if you're watching Sky Sports Football or, or whatever it's called these days, you're watching that because you want to know about football, and you're already a, a football connoisseur to a point, whereas BBC or ITV, they're, they're catering into a much broader market. So you know, I think it's understandable from that point of view. And I think the internet, whatever else it's done, it's allowed sort of niche groups to, to coalesce and to create a critical mass. Uh, so there is now an audience for that kind of thing. I also think that people who watch football, you know, we, you're well aware of the gentrification of football over the last sort of, 25 years or so. Um, and so perhaps the, um, yeah, the, the, the people who are interested in football now uh, are people who perhaps wouldn't necessarily have been interested 30, 40 years ago, maybe more university educated, maybe have a tendency to look at things in a more academic way. Um, I mean, I, I say that as somebody who kind of slightly awkwardly straddles that divide in that you know, I clearly am university educated, I am middle class, but I started going to football in 1982 when I was six and my dad went before me and his dad before him and his dad before him. Do you so, go to Roker Park, stand on the full end or did you sit on the side? Uh, I would, if I went with my dad, I'd stand on the Roker end because uh, his mother. Um, so that, that, that sounds like some terrible family split. My grandfather died before I was born, so I, I sort of think of him as my dad's dad rather than my grandfather. Um, my, my gran lived sorry, 200 yards out the back of the Roker end, so yeah, we'd go up there for tea on a Saturday and if someone were at home, initially we'd just pop along for the last 20 minutes or so. So yeah, you could, when they open the gates you'd get in for free, I mean it wouldn't happen today. Uh, but that's, I think it's a great way for a kid to kind of, yeah, 90 minutes is quite a long time for a kid. Um, especially watching that song inside. Um, I think, yeah, it's a great way to get a flavour of, of what a match is like, what, what the atmosphere is like. And, you know, we were getting sort of 13, 14,000 in those days, and it seemed like an impossible number of people. Um, you know, we got 26,000 to lose the forest on uh, Tuesday, and everybody's got, oh, a terrible crowd. So I'm thinking, you know, we never got 26,000. Like, Roger Park... By the end, 26, I think I think the 22? capacity was actually 20. Yeah, I think maybe right by the end it was 22. I think it was 27 after the first post Taylor report changes. Um, you so, touched, so yeah, sorry. You, so, yeah, you've I, touched I on so many little things yeah. there. <laughs> so yeah, I, I go and stand on the roker end uh, with my dad, and then when I started going with schoolmates, we go and stand on the full because the full was always a much younger demographic. Uh, so my dad preferred the road because that's where he'd stood with his dad. Didn't the four-wheel end, the, wasn't the roof too high for it? It always looked like an odd end to me. And please tell me if I'm talking bollocks, but I'd just go as an away fan. I'd stand on the roker end, which was open. It had been much bigger when it was rebuilt for the 1966 World Cup finals, I think. But by the end, it was condemned, and the four-wheel end was always noisy, but it, it looked like they pitched the roof. So it's actually the, the other way around. The, uh, the roker end was much larger yeah. right from the start. Yeah. So, I mean, the ground was built... Uh, in the 18, 1890s, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the roadway was huge, and it gradually got smaller and smaller as you know, various health and safety things. The full end, the roof was put on for 66 World Cup. Right. So it wasn't sort of late addition. Yeah. But actually, I think the acoustics of that end were brilliant. Yeah. Um, and there's a story when, when Sunderland beat City in the FA Cup fifth round in 1973, drew 2-2 at Main Road, beat them 3-1, which people in my dad's generation would always say was the best performance they'd ever seen from the Sunderland side in the second division against you know, a very very good City team um, and everybody says 
everybody who was there says the atmosphere that night was the best atmosphere they ever remember. And it was, I mean, even watching, it's on YouTube, you can watch it. Uh, Vic Hallam scores a brilliant goal, I think it's the second goal, uh, which everybody who's there says is the best goal ever scored at Oakwood Park. And it is a sensational goal. Um, but you can he hear on YouTube that the, the sound is amazing. And Malcolm Allison, who's then the city manager, the story goes that the next morning he, he broke into the ground to, to check the full end to see if there'd been some kind of artificial amplification of the sound. It was so noisy. So, I don't know, maybe it's just what you're used to, but I, I, I love that end. I, I, I like the Roker more, actually. I'd, I'd prefer some on the Roker, except there was no roof. We're going to talk tactics, but you touched on several points there, which what I, I want to comment on. I watched Sunderland a few weeks ago at Sheffield Wednesday. I thought you were easily the better team. I'm surprised where you were in the league table. We could fill a podcast with Manchester United Sunderland memories. My most vivid one at the old Roker Park was in an FA Cup replay about 96. Manchester United didn't sell the away end out. Far from it. I think Andy Cole scored a very important goal. Chance and I got the winner, I think. Yeah. Sunderland took the lead and lost 2-1 lost okay. in the second half. And then 10 years later in 2006, one of my friends joined Sunderland from Barcelona's <laughs> B team. And we sent off three minutes into his and debut. And he was sent off three minutes into his debut and it just didn't work out and sometimes football's like that. He's still one of my close friends. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. But he said to me, who should I join? I've got three options, Southampton, Hearts and Sunderland. And I said, buy a mile Sunderland. It's a great football club. And he said, well, come up to me, Sunderland with me and we'll sign. I'll sign. He had, a, he had a trial. Now Quinn liked him. And I said, tomorrow, news of you being a Sunderland player is going to break. You're not going to be able to walk around this town. City, is it a city? City. Became a city. City's 92, yeah. And said, tonight, I want to sit where the vocal Sunderland fans, I want to watch the Plymouth Argyle game as a fan, and then afterwards, I want to walk the streets with you. I want you to that see... That was a weirdly cold August afternoon. Yes. And Ian Holloway uh, was manager, and Plymouth For won Pl the game. Plymouth fans were singing, have you ever seen the sun? Because it was so cold. And he lost 3-1, I think? It, yes, and it was a surprise result, and it led to Roy Keane coming in. And I remember Holloway saying afterwards, I'm going to buy everybody in the Green Army a pint. And he did, <laughs> back in Plymouth. <laughs> After the game, I went in a working men's club in Roker, with our now. I said, I just want you to feel the atmosphere, because you won't be able to come here next week. And we sat down in people were drinking pints of bitter it was dark everyone was devastated because Sunderland had lost the game I'd taken them into the offices of a Love Supreme the fanzine and I heard on the next table these four guys saying there's a young lad coming from Spain <laughs> I tell you what I've heard he's a great player and I'm thinking this is too good to be true and, and I said excuse me and they looked at me because I was an outside like who are you I said, this young lad from Spain, he said, it's this boy here, do you mind if I introduce you to him? <laughs> like, no, no, no. And they sort of, they stood up, they straightened themselves and, you know, can we buy you a pint, lad? You know, and and uh, it's just such a shame that it didn't work out because I now became very good friends with Julio Arca, who's still playing football. And I went up there a few times and went out with Julio. What a hero he was. I've never seen Manchester United players receive the adulation. Well, it's because you've had more than one good player. We haven't for 20 years. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, Arca was brilliant for us, and he was somebody who very quickly like, adapted to the city and like understood the city. Man. Yeah, well, he married a local lass. Yeah, so that's why him. when he left Sunderland, he went to Middlesbrough. So yeah. She didn't want to leave the area. Now he's at South Shields, and yeah, they won the the trophy last year, didn't they? South Shields are getting sixteen hundred. Yeah, this podcast could go way off on far too many tangents. <laughs> we don't have much time. We've both got to do things uh, this afternoon. When you were going to Sunderland as, as a kid, were you watching? 
with a tactical and analytical eye. Were you a bit different from your mates who maybe just wanted a few beers and to sing? And uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I think looking back, I, mean, I was always terrible at football. I, uh, I, I'm an awful football player, and so I think maybe I did compensate for that by by trying to analyse it. And you know, I, I remember when I when I was at university, I, I um, captained our, our college second team. Um, mainly because I could be bothered to turn up uh, and regularly I'd take myself off for 20 minutes to go because I felt I was more use shouting at people from the touchline than, than clogging the ball forward from right back on the pitch so I think without really realising it maybe yes and I definitely read a lot of stuff about tactics and you know, I remember there was a Ladybird book on football which had just a page like setting out different formations and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd try different formations against my dad playing Sabutio so I think in, without really realising I think probably yes um, and then you know, I'd written Behind the Curtain which you know, as, as you mentioned earlier and I was sitting in an office with my agent and my, my editor saying what are you going to do next and we're knocking around a few ideas and I've just done a big piece for 442 on, on the history of tactics so I've just done this piece and I, you know, the piece is like 10,000 words long so I can easily make it 10 times longer I want to go to Argentina, I want to go to Brazil I want to go to Ukraine, I want to talk to these people and um, the editor had actually commissioned a book on the history of tactics a few years earlier of Peter Ball, the old Times journalist, and he died before he finished it. Yeah, I knew Peter because he covered Manchester United mm. before Neil Custis. So, yeah, yeah, I knew Peter. Yeah. So he he was um, he was meant to be doing this book on the history of tactics, and yeah, you know, he died. So obviously he couldn't do it. Yeah, and Andy Gray's book on tactics came out, so the idea sort of lost a bit of momentum. Uh, so the editor, once I suggested it, was kind of quite happy to say, yeah, go on and do it. And then I was just lucky, I think, that there was this sort of rising tide of interest in tactics and a rising recognition among newspapers and magazines that people cared about tactics. And yeah, the, the book caught that wave and, and did very well as a result. Let's talk Manchester United tactics. I've just been sent the latest UEFA technical report, which apparently is distributed within the, the coaching community. And it focuses on Manchester United against Ajax in the Europa League final. We sat next to each other at that game. And it goes into real detail about Mourinho's game plan. What do you see when you watch Manchester United about the evolving style of play? What is... Jose Mourinho doing and what did Louis van Gaal do wrong because I spoke to people at a high level in football who said van Gaal's principles were actually sound he just didn't have the players to carry them out and he, that, that is van Gaal's view I don't necessarily buy it but I wondered what your, your thought would be yeah I mean I, let's start with van Gaal I mean I, I think if you look across, I mean, actually, the book I'm writing now, which I've got to finish by December, so it'll be out sometime next autumn, which is sort of on the legacy of, of Barcelona in the late 90s when Van Hal was a manager, Mourinho and Koeman was two assistants, and you had Guardiola and Luis Enrique in, in, in the team. And so, you know, those five figures have obviously been massively influential over the last 20 years or so. And I think it's something I hadn't really appreciated until I started studying it that there was really, within the Ajax method, there was a real divide between the Cruyffians and the Van Harlians. The Van Haal's football was always much more cautious. That although they were, they were based on pressing and possession, Cruyff wanted his, his wingers to take on the fullback. Yeah, he didn't mind too much if he lost the ball. He, he was prepared to, have, to allow players to take risks. Van Haal was all about keep the ball, keep the ball, keep the ball. And I think you see that right the way through with Van Haal um, at Barcelona, 
even that Ajax, I mean, I guess because he was so young and there's so many exciting players in his Ajax side that won the Champions League when they had Clivet and Canu and Overmars and Fanidi George. I guess he did have people who had that little spark that, that, that could enliven a, an otherwise quite stolid team. But even then, you look back at what people like um, Tiak Svart, who played in the Ajax of the 70s, what he was saying about that team back then was, this is dull. You know, I don't pay to watch you know, a, a winger face a fullback and turn back inside and give it back to the midfield. You saw, you saw that at United, you saw that at Bayern. Uh, I mean, Paul Brighton was very critical of, you know, even though they, they came in one game and winning the treble, Paul Brighton was very critical of that Bayern for being too negative. So I think that caution, that frustration people had of the stodginess of United's play, I don't think United are the first club to experience that. And what's, what I find fascinating is that Van Gaal, when he's manager of RZ and when he's manager of the Netherlands national side, the second time, didn't play like that. He played a much more direct kind of football. And I find it slightly weird that when he had worse players, he almost played better football or, or more exciting football. And you know, maybe, well, I'm, I'm sure United fans, I'm sure people like me, sort of casual observers, would have liked to see a bit more risk-taking, a bit less sort of polished football, but a bit more... We saw little bits of it in the spring of 15. People thought, he's cracked the code here, mm. it's working. United took apart Well, then Michael Liverpool Carrick got injured, didn't he? Against, yeah. Was against City, he got yeah. injured near the end, and that yeah. seemed to... I, mean, I think Carrick was, was a really key player. Yeah, there was those three or four games they beat... Villa, Tottenham, Liverpool, Liverpool City. Yeah. And City, yeah. yeah. Um, and then it all fell away again. But I mean, I think that suggests just how fragile the mechanism is. But that was what had happened to Bayern. You know, there'd been that first season where not much had gone right, and they suddenly won 4 one away at Juventus and clicked. And then, can you see why... United then went for Jose Mourinho, who's always been seen as a pragmatist, but one who gets results, one who wins trophies. Well, yes and no. I mean, I can see why there was frustration with Van Gaal. Because uh, it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think by the end of the second season, it was totally valid to say, I don't think this is working. But even though it was the FA Cup win, and perhaps that could all have been handled better, yeah, there's something, you know, Van Hal this week spoke of his humiliation after that game. And I think if you've got a manager who's won the FA Cup, especially when it's probably going to be his last, or maybe going to be his last job in football, given the dignity of having three or four days to enjoy that before... before it was badly handled, but yeah. Manchester United fans hardly covered themselves in glory either by booing him at the end of the game at Wembley. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I have sympathy with Van Hal from that point of view, but I think, yeah, the, the, the perception that maybe, yeah, his... His time at the cutting edge of football ended sort of in the mid-90s, or maybe late-90s. I think that's probably valid. Whether Mourinho is the right man, I'm, I'm doubtful of him. He does bring results. He always wins the league in the second season. You know, he obviously started this season pretty well, so maybe that'll happen again. I'd worry about the messy leaves behind him afterwards. That every club he's been to has had a period after he's gone. Uh, you know, Chelsea most recently, I guess, had only one season of it, but with other clubs, it's gone on for far longer, where... I don't know, he sort of, he leaves this sort of toxic waste ground behind him and it takes a lot of cleaning up. Um, Even so, at Real Madrid, the hardcore yeah. fans will argue now as to the rights and wrongs of Mourinho and they, a lot of them still really, really like him and there's people at the club who think he's the worst thing that, worst person who was ever at that club. So I, I've seen quite a recent example of that. But Manchester United fans, they are behind him. He's got a far bigger bank of credit after just over a season than Louis van Gaal had. The team have been winning trophies. Sixth place was a disappointment last year, but the team did win two trophies, three if you count 
the community shield which Jose Mourinho uh, certainly does but also the players they're behind the manager you can see in players like Fellaini that they really believe in the manager and vice versa but tactically one thing I noticed about Mourinho is how he how he can change the research that he puts into his opponents he watched the Ajax team eight times before the Europa League final and, and he switches his formation as well then again he, he likes to go for the, the, the bigger players where do you see Manchester United going? well I, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't dispute that he puts his work in uh, I think defensively he probably still is the best coach in Europe in, in the world I don't mean that sort of to dismiss him that, but that is clearly his strength um, and you, you go right back if you look at when he was working with Bobby Robson first as, as a translator and then sort of as a de facto assistant at Porto and Barcelona Bobby clearly dealt with the attacking side of things and Mourinho sorted out that this is how we stop the opposition now I think what's, what's interesting in that regard is something that Ed Nazar said last season which is that Conte works with Chelsea far more on attacking patterns attacking structure on almost pre-programmed moves that you then sort of when you get into a game situation you you flick into okay this is your move X yeah. and everybody knows where they're moving I don't think Mourinho does that um, or so he doesn't do that as much as maybe slightly younger coaches that would be my slight concern with him uh, he's great at stopping the opposition is he good at breaking down good opponents not 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 the sort of London life <laughs> Not the sort of mid-ranking opponents United struggled against last season, but the um, when, you know, when he comes up against a really good side, yeah, he can get a nil-nil draw. Can he beat them two-nil, three-nil, three-one? And I'm not sure about that. I wonder if that attacking side of the game is something where football has moved on, and he perhaps has been left very slightly behind. So that would be my my question about the tactical point of view. But my my, my my problem with Mourinho is actually far more to do with personality and far more to do with. Uh, his manner of leadership and I can understand why fans love him I, I suspect if he, was, if he was Sunderland manager I would love him um, but he is very charismatic he is very good at, at sort of creating that cult around him and I, you know, the, the, the book I'm doing I've spoken to a lot of players he played from at Porto to people like Manny Shosh Costa Costinha Vita Baia and honestly it's, it's like talking to members of a cult they cannot hear a word against him I spoke to Benny McCarthy a lot about him and he would be part of that cult. He absolutely yeah. loves it. And, and Benny McCarthy was somebody who actually got quite a tough time off Mourinho. Mourinho was really strict with him. Um, Benny McCarthy, I think, had a, had a girlfriend who lived in Vigo. In Vigo and he was, all, and he was always he was always nipping off to see him. To see her, sorry. He still nips her to see his kids with that girl, although <laughs> he's not with her. Uh, and, yeah, Mourinho would repeatedly ban him from games for, for doing that. So, yeah, I, I, I can see all of that. But... Do um, traffic lights work in London, by the way? We've just been yeah, studying. Yeah, they've, they've gone right. green. They've gone green. Finally, don't well, get this in all, Manchester. We're meant to be the invasion ones. Calm down, son. <laughs> um, but but well, what what concerns me with him is he he seems you know, he openly admits he regards press conferences as being part of the game. His the pressure he can apply to opponents, to referees, to yeah, the, the authorities that, that for him is all fair game which up to a point is alright and the United fans are obviously very used to that with, with Fergie so before the Ajax game Mourinho said in one of his interviews they like to press the ball high I don't think they'll be able to do what they like to do so he's dropped that nugget in there and I'm sure the Ajax manager would have got that and thought who on earth is he 
to say what we're going to do and not do. Yeah, well, that, that actually, kind of, Mourinho was right. That yes, absolutely. That kind of comment, I got no problem with. Yeah, but that's addressing something in the game. It's applying a little bit of psychological pressure. Where I do have a problem is things like you know, what he said about Anders Frisk during that yeah. uh, Barcelona Chelsea game. That you know, he, he claimed he'd seen Frank Rijkaard entering Frisk's room. Well, he hadn't because he didn't. And you know, if he's then. You know, it, it, maybe he didn't quite understand. You, know, you could make an argument, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't describe this, but you could make an argument. Maybe he didn't recognise what the consequences of that would be. Consequences of which you know, were Chelsea fans going mad, death threats to Frisk. He'd been hit by a missile thrown earlier that season, so maybe he was already a bit kind of uh, on the alert. And Frisk ends up retiring. So he's ended the man's career. But then there's no sort of remorse for that. There's no. Um, no sort of sense of yeah sorry I went too far you know, he, he was literally laughing about it in a Portuguese TV show a month later so that lack of willingness to take responsibility that lack of understanding of consequences troubles me with him and there will be some incident where United have to deal with that and I saw it a lot in Real Madrid and yeah. my opinion of him dropped massively from the man who had always wanted to become Manchester United manager after Sir Alex Ferguson retired and I said that on television in in 2011 and then watched him at Madrid and he, he, you know the poking of Tito Villanova I thought, oh, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary it's forgotten about disgraceful behaviour disgraceful yeah um, but I'm a Manchester United fan so are uh, the people who are listening <laughs> to this <laughs> football fans want their football team to win matches Mourinho has got that team winning matches you talked about the charisma he granted United we stand a full interview, you know, not to a broadsheet newspaper, which he could have done. He spoke to a fanzine. And that was fantastic. And he was charismatic, genuinely interesting, very friendly. Now, of course, it's in his interests to be, but he didn't need to do it. Van Gaal didn't have a clue what a fanzine was. Yeah. No, but, I mean, you look at that two ways. I, I would look at it and, and say that's him being very smart. Yeah, He recognises he wants the fans on board. And, and our good way getting the fans on board is yeah. to talk to them. Yeah. Um... And, you know, I, I, was, I talked to Leonard Slusky before he became Hall manager and he was saying, you know, what, what do I need to do to get the fans on board? So the first thing I said was, go and talk to fans and go, go to some fans' event. Yeah. Make sure the fans see you as somebody who's listening to them, who's aware of them. So, yeah, it, it is good that he's done it, but it's also beneficial to him. Of course. But as with most interviews, there is something in it for both parties. From our perspective, and you're a journalist, we get the interview. Martin Edwards gave us an an interview a couple of weeks ago and I went to see him. Why? Because he's got a book coming out. So I'm quite happy to be part of getting access if they get something uh, out of it as well. In terms of Manchester United this season, do you see them with a default formation or do you see the formation as one which shifts within games? And how do you think he's using Romelu Lukaku and also Henrik Mkhitaryan? Because he's far more effective already this season in terms of the amount of ball that he sees and the number of goals that he creates than last season. What's changed there? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the, um, there's a couple of things. Lukaku clearly is a lot more mobile than Zlatan ever was. So that, that just means that going forward, you're not going to be as static, you're not going to be as predictable as you were, which I think was a, one of the reasons why United had so many of those draws where they dominated the game. But, you know, the, the chances they were creating were predictable chances. Um, so... Whatever faults Lukaku has, and I remain slightly to be convinced by him at the very highest level, you know, he's proved he's very good at scoring against you know, teams. Six S- and S- Sunderland at Goodison Park <laughs> was a game I saw earlier this year. Sorry. 
and he scored a hat trick against the Stadium of Light last season as well. Okay. So yeah, um, but also I think Matic is a huge thing, um, just as somebody to anchor the midfield. I mean, basically he does what Carrick did, um, but he's you know what six years younger, five yeah. years younger. Yeah. Um, and that in theory should release Pogba. I don't think we've seen quite the best of Pogba yet. Uh, and so that, that that base becomes much more stable, and then the front three have that sort of um, bit more freedom and so Mkhitaryan can find his own space rather than sort of being conditioned by what's happening behind him so I, I would imagine the 4-3-3 will be, be the default um, maybe changing the 4-3-3-1 and, and yeah Mourinho's very very good I think it's, it's fiddling around with things in games um, I think that's his great great strength tactically is his capacity to anticipate what might happen in the game but if, if you talk to people who, who played from the Porto at Chelsea at, at Real Madrid they all talk about how um, he, he, it was almost like you could see the future. That he would say, "Okay, Port, we got this game against Benfica. Look at who the ref is. We're probably going to get a man sent off. So this is how we're going to play ten against eleven against them." Sure enough, twenty minutes ago, man sent off. They play ten against eleven and score. Um, and these things are sort of self-reinforcing. Once it happens once, players are obviously going to listen to Mourinho far more when he starts saying, "All right, this game." Yeah, we might have to get a goal in the last 10 minutes so we're going to go to four up front or whatever uh, when Chelsea beat PSG in the Champions League you know, John Terry said after that game that at every stage of a game you know, every 10 minute period of a game they knew what to do whatever the score was they'd been told alright if, we, if we're if it's 1-1 one, one, we're half an hour to go this is how we're going to play and so there was no sort of doing it on the hoof they'd been fully prepared for that so that's why I think Mourinho was brilliant at us uh, from a tactical point of view, probably better than anybody else in the game. Um, so, yeah, I guess from a United point of view, you don't want to see that too often because it means things maybe aren't going that well. But when you need it in big games, he, he can do it. Walking down the Grays Inn Road in London, some Cologne fans have just walked past. I'm told that 10,000 of them come to the game against Arsenal. There were huge numbers of Borussia Dortmund fans at Wembley last night, German fans travelling well when you look at some of the attacking Manchester United players Anthony Martial uh, Marcus Rashford they seem to be young exceptionally talented they've not got the level of consistency as, as maybe some of the more experienced players but Mourinho seems to be persisting with them giving them a kick up the backside especially Martial who I think is inherently lazy but exceptionally uh, talented and I don't use the word lazy lazily because I've spoke to people who know him very well and, and who, who, who like him um, so what do you make of those two? Well Rashford uh, um, I think I, his debut was against Michelin is that right? Yes Yes I, I was sacked halfway through that game by Fox so I was sacked? Well I was, I was laid off yeah But you just got an email saying we don't need you anymore yeah. Yeah. S- <laughs> Saying what? Saying we're taking we're taking things in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> let us know any expenses claims you've got, and we'll, we'll pay it up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I saw his debut. Uh, but Trump, Trump's going to be president, <laughs> so we're going to put your expenses into his campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were very good at paying expenses. To be fair, I wish I'd sort of manipulated that a bit. Um, so I, I remember his debut fairly clearly, uh, if not for the right reasons. And then I was at Wembley on the following Sunday watching on TV as United played Arsenal does that sound that's likely? right yeah um, I knew we were sort of sitting at, at, uh, in the Wembley press room watching that game sort of just laughing look at Arsenal being Arsenal again um, 
And I have to say, my my my, my fear then, and my suspicion then, was that Rashford was just somebody who happened to be in the right place repeatedly. But as time's gone on, he's got better and better and better. And I thought his performance for England against Slovakia was, was superb. So he seems to be developing as a player almost week by week. And Mourinho's got to take enormous credit for that. And yeah, so it's not something that he's particularly uh, noted for, is how he works with young players. So I think that's a very positive development. Martial. Um, another player who wants to play as a central striker. Another player who is unlikely to play as a central striker. Yeah, but I, th- I think the way modern football is, you, unless you're sort of somebody of Lukaku's build, I think you've got to accept you, you're going to play in a range of positions. You've got to be prepared to play centrally off the front man, you can be the front man, or you're going to play wide. You know, I think to say, I'm a centre-forward, unless you're sort of the, you know, the, the, the target man figure. Um, if you look at Griezmann, Bale, Ronaldo, the best players in the world, they, they're all versatile. Exactly, yeah. You see, I just think you've got to learn that and, and accept that. Um, yeah, Martial's talent is obvious. Uh, it would be a disappointment if his progress stalled. But you know, if I mean, I'm sure you know far far better than me. But if he is lazy, then that's his own his own issue. And to be honest, there's very few coaches more likely to to snap him out of that than Mourinho. Yeah, that's what I think. And then the revelation, the new Zidane, the Marwan Fellaini. <laughs> He seems to be someone... I know that Mourinho adores him and the feeling's mutual, but he has gone from being the biggest scapegoat among Manchester United fans since Wayne Rooney to being a very effective player, even though he's not as technically gifted as you might expect a Manchester United player to be. just shows, doesn't it? It does. I thought he always played pretty well under Van Gaal. The way Van Gaal used him is that sort of a second striker, sort of a sort of weird target man from midfield. And, you know, we were saying earlier that one of the problems with Van Gaal's football was that it's so precise and so mannered and so predictable. Well, he gave you that, that, that sense of chaos. He gave you that, um, yeah, that that's something different. Um, that perhaps wasn't there, that he could break up patterns. And you know, I think he had a value from that point of view. And maybe to do that, you don't have to be as technically gifted as, as others, just to have a, that imagination, that, that courage, that willingness to, 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 to do different things coming towards the end of this podcast and enjoyed listening to your opinions do you think United are ready to win the league this year or is it a season too soon for them I mean I, I think there's an obvious big six um, and I think within that six you can probably split it into two uh, so I, I'd say it's between City, Chelsea and United maybe Tottenham and then um, Liverpool and Arsenal a little, a little way behind. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, I, I suspect Tottenham haven't quite got the maturity of the squad to, to keep pressing. Um, although Juventus coming in will will help out for them, but I, I think it's between those three. I think it's between United you know, and Chelsea. And then Mourinho said we are still some way behind the best teams in Europe. I think he said four. That would be Madrid. Barca, Bayern and, and, and Juventus. Why have English teams been so underwhelming and disappointing in European competition? And I spoke to Mourinho about this and he said the intensity of the Premier League, the, the lack of a winter break, um, not, not at Christmas but maybe in a couple of weeks after that. Why is it the Spanish teams that are doing so well and the English teams are not? Well, I think that intensity is, is a major issue, isn't it? That, um, I mean, I, I think an interesting experiment would be if you 
played the top team in the Premier League against the top team in La Liga, two against two, three against three, four against four, down to 20 against 20. Yeah. And my guess is that the top six or seven games will be pretty tightly contested. Yeah. You got, if you get down to the bottom end, the Premier League teams will win quite easily. Um, they, yeah, they're, they're richer, they're, they're, they're tougher, they're Far better. richer. Uh, and yeah, they've got better squads. So I don't think that, and I think Guardiola's found that at City as well. That, um, that, that it is, you know, there's no game where you can sort of play a half pace between up after half an hour and, and sub off your three best players. You've got to, pretty much every game, you've got to go health leather for 90 minutes. I mean, Mourinho gave the example when he was at Madrid. If you have Levante coming to the Bernabeu, you just know you're going to destroy them. Yeah, ex- exactly. Madrid, um, Real Madrid's last home game was Levante, and they drew one off. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an anomaly. But but I mean, you know, if you look at how many games are won three or four nil, yeah, or more in La Liga or, or Serie A or the Bundesliga compared to the Premier League, yeah, there's far far more. Um, plus, the nature of it was more tackles. It's a more percussive type of football. So it's more wearing. It's more tiring. It's faster, and that, that's one of the reasons it's richer. Is that people want to see us. So those two things go hand in hand. Um, and so inevitably that's, that takes its toll. And I think we've also got, what, what I see is, I mean I say this obviously somebody who's not a fan of a top club, quite a healthy attitude that, well you're playing the Champions League on a Tuesday night, play on a Saturday, stop moaning and wanting to play on a Friday. You know, that, that is the integrity of the competition. We'll give you two full days off, but you don't get three. You shouldn't expect three. Um, Whereas other leagues, perhaps, uh, they, they, they cater to the big clubs, the teams in the other, a little bit more. So, there's those facts. But also, I mean, the actual massive stars are still playing at Barcelona and, and Real Madrid. Yeah, they're, they're the very biggest players, in, and, and PSG now, but the very biggest players in the world are, are not in the Premier League for whatever reason. Thank you for your time. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to talk about the mighty Sunderland. And how they're going to do, or is that too, too, too depressive subject? Utterly, utterly doomed. Um, I mean, we actually started the season way better than I expected us to. I, I thought we'd, we'd really struggle. And I take no, no joy in being proved right. It's just a sickness of the heart of the club. And it probably won't go until the short's gone. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Just like that. So that's it for this United We Stand podcast. We'll be bringing you another one next week with James Brown. James is a a Leeds fan, so we're going to talk a bit about Leeds United and Manchester United because Leeds are doing well again now. Uh, James was the editor of GQ. He started Loaded Magazine and he's, he's a decent listen. He's written a good book about football as well. And then it will be back to the normal schedule from Liverpool away. And then I'll be going to Benfica, doing a podcast from there. We're also starting work on the next United We Stand, which is going to come out against Huddersfield away. We're going to launch it at an away game because we've got no own games. I think four of the next five matches are away from Old Trafford. So if you want to get anything off your chest, send a letter in or any ideas for articles to uwsmag at yahoo.co.uk. For subscriptions, go to our website, uwsonline.com. We've held the price both of the mag and subscriptions for years and years it has never been uh, as cheap to buy the mag uh, for a subscription especially if you're outside the UK as it is now and that's been reflected by the number of people who are ordering subscriptions so if you like what we do then please support us and 
uh, order and subscription to United We Stand. We'll get the next podcast up on Monday or Tuesday, and then it'll be Liverpool away. Until next time, goodbye.